Good morning. We are really honored and blessed that you're here, and I know what it is to give up a Saturday. I'm doing it too, but uh, I believe that you will be encouraged by seeing the sufficiency of the Word of God and speaking to every issue of life, including finances. I wanted to give a little bit of my background in terms of why this issue is of interest to me. Uh, in college, I was actually a, an accounting major and worked for the first several years of my career in, in computers and finances and accounting. Another thing that happened to me is when I was in my 20s, I worked in the Middle East for oil companies and made a lot of money. Uh, I haven't been doing that lately because I've been a pastor for the last 21 years, but through those experiences also, I made a lot of the mistakes I'm going to warn you against today. So I'm not, not just on a theoretical level, but on a very practical level, um, I've, I've learned a lot about this. And then as well, uh, we do a lot of counseling with people, and the, especially these days as, as families are facing, do I short sale my home? I'm way upside down. Do I go into foreclosure? You know, my credit card debt is getting bigger and bigger. Do I declare bankruptcy? Or how can I change? And so I'm going to try to be dealing with some of those issues on a practical level, but I also want to do it on, on a very biblical level. We have a lot of books for sale out there. Uh, many of I've read all of those books that we're selling, actually, cover to cover. Uh, one thing, some of them are strong on the theoretical level and not very strong on the practical level. Some are very good practically and aren't so biblical in terms of content. I'm, I'm hoping in the seminar to bring out both elements, both to be very practical, but also to show explicitly from Scripture uh, why uh, we see things this way. As all of you are aware, the world is in the midst of a great financial crisis. Uh, we heard reports this week that unemployment had dropped to 8.9%. However, when you include the people who have given up looking for work, the statistics are more like 12 to 16% unemployed. A lot of the statistics the government gives us are actually manipulating figures to make things look a little better than they are. Uh, and, of course, what's really hard is many of those who are unemployed are people who not only lacked savings, but had lots and lots of debt. And there are so many families that are one family, one paycheck away from insolvency. Uh, also, we have millions of homes into foreclosure, uh, several million a year over the last few years. One home in eight is either way behind or in foreclosure, meaning they've not been making their payments. Uh, and then there are about 10 million homes that are upside down on top of that, meaning that the home is worth far less than they could sell it for. Uh, we've observed the dramatic changes in the stock market. You know, a couple of years ago, people were saying, my 401K has become a 201K, and up and down it goes. And part of the effect as well is many people, after they had saved a lifetime hoping for retirement, it dropped significantly in value, and now the returns available, you go to the bank and they offer you 1% uh, when your money's being inflated away at a much more rapid rate. And so it's a very distressing time for people facing retirement or for seniors uh, trying to live off of savings. Uh, the government has taken various uh, drastic measures, mostly borrowing more money, creating uh, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, and that has an effect. Uh, all of this is impacting each one of us. Uh, the good news is, is that the Word of God not only is infallible, but it's all-sufficient. One thing that's really interesting is when you look at much of what we're going to be referring to is written about 3,000 years ago in Proverbs. 
some of it was written in the law of God even before that in, in the Pentateuch. And that everything that's happening now was written about before. And uh, we're going to go through this. I'm not going to go through every detail. But you know, private property is affirmed in Scripture. You shall not steal or even covet. Uh, remember Naboth's vineyard. That even uh, one ordinary citizen could stand up against the king of a nation in terms of his right to his inheritance in the land. Uh, how we gain wealth through working hard. Uh, that prices and wages are to be equitable. Extravagance is foolish and will make you poor. Debt is really foolish, the Bible says. Taxation, and we should pay our taxes. Saving is wise. Honoring God from our wealth. Having compassion on the poor. Another aspect of general principle in Proverbs is that wisdom thinks long term. It doesn't just solve, you know, relieve the pain today, but it's thinking decades ahead, which is what people who have to get reelected every two years do not think about at all. And as we see the mess we're in, that you really were in this mess by violating principles in Scripture. Uh, the proverb says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope that for a fool than him. Uh, Niall Ferguson, who's a historian, uh, teaches at Harvard, says the masters of the universe pay far too little heed to the lessons of the past. And he's written a lovely book called The Ascent of Money, in which going through the history of finances and bubbles, going back to tulip bubbles in the 1600s in Holland, showing how what's happening now is simply re- is a repetition of what's happened many, many times in history, uh, usually through government folly. And as businessmen and investors have tried to circumvent God's way of earning wealth by trying to get rich quickly uh, through using debt and speculative finance, as individuals have used debt to finance their lifestyles, and there are trillions of dollars of, of consumer debt, even in the housing boom, remember what was happening when the housing prices were going up and you know, somebody bought their house for $150,000, now it's worth $200,000, what do they do? Well, boy, I can borrow another $50,000 on my house. And they refinanced and took forty, fifty thousand 50000 out and they paid off their credit cards that they shouldn't have run up and they buy a boat and they go on a cruise and now it's worth $300,000. Wow, I can buy more money. And they were using their homes as, as piggy banks and later paid the price. Of course, we all paid the price. Uh, governments have figured out that programs are popular and taxation is not popular. And so the programs continue and spend money, but then the taxation remains relatively low. If you've done your taxes, I was surprised how little money I How can they run the government on how little they take from me? Well, they are spending about one and a half times what they take in. How long could you do that? You know, they'll spend three and a half trillion and take in two trillion, uh, there was actually, I think, the deficit for the month of February was more than the entire deficit for the year 2000, uh, 200 and something billion dollars. And, and governments also have, have promoted policies that promote debt, and the creation of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and, and the programs essentially encouraging lenders to give money to people who couldn't afford the loans to buy houses, and of course, the net drives the price of houses up because everybody can buy one. Uh, ultimately leading to the defaults which have impacted the entire world. Uh, and, and in doing this also, you know, the, one of the, about the most foolish things Proverbs says you can do is be surety for the debt of somebody else, right? Where you co-sign. 
that the government has essentially co-signed in our name for all that bad debt by guaranteeing all those bad loans. And that's why all of us are suffering the pain for what they did. Uh, and people are not being held accountable for their actions. Uh, what a man sows, as he will reap, is a biblical principle. But the, be it the loan broker or the bank officer or the real estate agent or even the home buyer who walks away from the home just out of convenience, uh, the people who are making the mess, aren't, and much less the politicians, aren't actually having to pay a price. Uh, one of my favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life, right? There's Jimmy Stewart, and he's working at the Thrift and Loan. And every loan that he makes, he knows he's going to be held accountable for it being repaid. And he shows some grace, but he looks at the character of the people, their ability to repay, and he will lose his job and his business if he makes bad loans. Well, the loan brokers aren't Jimmy Stewart, are they? They get thousands of dollars as soon as the loan's made. They never have to think about it again. And, and so much of the prosperity our nation enjoyed till a few years ago was really built on folly. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles. And that's what's happened to us. So what we're going to do today is we're going to have four main sessions. And we're going to talk generally in the first session about what the Bible says about money. And then uh, in the first session, we're also going to jump into the topic of how do you gain money legitimately? What are the biblical principles for that? Uh, then we're going to have a session on spending money, which really means budgeting. And then we're going to have a session on borrowing money, which means don't. Uh, and then finally, and then how to get out of debt if you're in debt, and then finally saving for the future. Um, one thing I think is very important to point out at the very beginning is it's important to distinguish between biblical precepts and principles of wisdom. Biblical precept, thou shalt not steal. And if you're a thief, you will be. if you're a member of our church, we're going to put you under discipline if you don't repent. It's a matter of... Of, of absolute command. Now, if you if you run up your credit cards a bit, that's foolish. <laughs> if you co-sign a debt, that's foolish, but it's a principle of wisdom. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I think it's wise for you to have insurance for certain catastrophic events, but I can't tell you it's sin for you not to have it in the same way I could tell you that it would be sin for you to steal. So there are some things I'm going to say, and, and you can ask me if I don't make it clear, is this what the Bible says I must do? Or is this a principle of wisdom where you're going to pay the price if you don't do it, but it's not a clear-cut case of sin? I can't prove from the Bible you must buy health insurance and life insurance. Legally, you have to have some car insurance. But I can tell you I think it's very wise for you to do so. Uh, That would be a good example of that. Uh, We're going to address many money myths. At the beginning of each section, I'm going to list down uh, money myths, and we're going to knock each one of those down. But also, I'm going to try to provide some practical steps and tools. We're going to have some case studies uh, as examples, and then we'll point you to some other resources. But first, uh, general principles about money, and here's some money myths. Uh, People think money is evil. No. What's evil? The love of money. Many people think money is the secret to security. No, our security is in God. People say that those with the most money are happiest. Not so. Proverbs talks about it's, it's better in a home uh, whether you're eating vegetables and there's peace than eating a fatted calf or ox where there's disharmony. And another one is, is people say, well, certain forms of wealth can never lose their value. You know, if you buy real estate, they're not going to make more of that. Or if you buy gold, you're safe. Not necessarily. 
Anything can lose value. But first, I'm going to speak very theoretically. What is wealth? What is, you know, and wealth takes various forms. Real estate or land can be wealth. Houses. A business has value. That can be a store of wealth. Commodities like gold or silver or pork bellies or grain or oil barrels can be wealth. And then money itself. Well, then what is money? Um, money is a store of value. And this is something maybe you've not thought about exactly this way. Wayne Grudem says it's one thing that sets us apart from animals. Uh, one definition of money is it's a medium of exchange which has the advantage of eliminating inefficiencies of barter. It's a unit of account which facilitates valuation and calculation, a store of value which allows economic transactions to be conducted over long periods as well as geographic distance. I mean, some people want to go back to a barter economy, but that might be harder than you think. Uh, Wayne Grudem gives the example. He says, I write books. Jane bakes bread. John builds walls. I want bread. Jane wants a wall, and John wants a book. What do you do? Well, you establish a value to each of those uh, categories, and, and money enables you, even if one of you is far away, to exchange your labor or your products uh, through a common means. And in order to do this, money has to be available, it has to be affordable, durable, portable, and reliable as a store of value. And if, in, in the history of money, Nile Ferguson does a, a lovely job just explaining how it's come into pass. Historically, metals such as gold or silver, you know, they're a limited quantity and it's portable, uh, has often been made to, for currency. There are coins dating back hundreds of years before Christ. I was reading in my Bible reading today how the children of Israel uh, were offering money to the nations as they were going through. Uh, so there was some form of money way back then. And then, of course, what we have would be called fiat money. It's not based, dollars are not based upon gold. Euros are not based upon gold or silver. It's just based upon electrons. Uh, it's just declared quantity and, and value. Which, and, and money, no matter what the form is, is worth only what someone is willing to pay for it. In the past, we were on a gold standard. And the idea was not that we had an equal amount of gold to all the dollars, but the government promised initially to its citizens and later to foreign governments, is that no matter how many dollars you bring me, I'll give you one ounce for every 35, of gold for every $35 you bring me. And it kind of keeps the government honest because they, they can't go printing a bunch of money if they can't exchange that money for gold if somebody asks. But we went completely off the gold standard in 1971, and Roosevelt early in his administration took us off it in terms of private transactions. And, and the value of any form of money can change. Now, the most obvious is government debasing of currency, which is happening now. You know, if, if there are, if, if, if the government prints, or they don't even have to run the printing press now, they can just, with a punch of a computer key and banks, create trillions of dollars. But if there are suddenly now twice as many trillions of dollars as there were five years ago, what happens to all that money? Its value becomes diluted. In the old days, they would take the gold coins and they would debase them. And, and they would put you know, a little bit of, of zinc or copper or bronze into it and so the, it was a little less valuable. They'd cut off the edges and cut out some of the value. Well, now, in the same way, the government will, by creating more money and mon you know, like monetizing the debt, which is something our government has done, uh, Niall Ferguson says, by 
A continuing process of inflation, governments can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens. You could be sitting there holding $100,000, but if the government doubles the money supply, now your $100,000 only buy half of what it did before. And, and inflation has kind of been a government policy for a long time. The people who benefit most from inflation are those who are in debt. Who has the most debt? The government. Uh, but this isn't just for uh, dollars. It can be, you know, if oil right now is over $100 a barrel, but if somebody discovers a process by which you can turn seawater to oil for 50 cents a gallon, uh, the price of oil would go right down, right? Uh, or if somebody discovered some massive gold reserves in Antarctica where all of a sudden the, the world supply of gold tripled, your Krugerrands and American Eagles that you paid $1,500 for may be worth $30, uh, if that, that goes on. So it's, it's all supply and demand, which of course means ultimately we don't trust in Krugerrands or dollars, but in the Lord. He is our only hope. Uh, the Bible teaches that God owns everything. He is the one who gives you power to make wealth. He owns the cattle on the thousand hills. He blesses those who are wise, the Proverbs says, uh, with wealth, generally speaking. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich. He adds no sorrow to it. The hand of the diligent makes rich. Under the old covenant, when Israel was faithful, they prospered economically. Now, does that mean that the rich are always the wisest people and the poor are always the most foolish? Does it mean that all wise people are always rich? No, because Proverbs contains not unconditional promises, but maxims. General principles of how the world works. Very important when you read Scripture, understand what's a promise and what's a general principle. Generally, those who get into debt are foolish, but some people can leverage debt and make a lot of money. Uh, generally speaking, I'm going to tell you that the lottery is a foolish thing to spend your money on, but some people win the lottery. Fools and sluggards sometimes win the lottery, and, and the diligent sometimes have crop failure. So these are general principles. Uh, likewise, as we've already said, that money itself is not evil. It's the love of money that's the root of every kind of evil. The Bible also says that your use of money shows your character. Jesus said, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? How you deal with your money reflects upon who you are in terms of your character. Uh, money is also a good thing because it enables you to fulfill your responsibilities. Uh, the person who doesn't provide for his own household is denying the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So for my, myself and others here... I want money. It's not sinful to want the money to pay the mortgage, to feed my family, to take care of the responsibilities God has given me, and I should be motivated. You should be motivated to do what it takes legitimately uh, to provide for your family, and it takes a lot. Money also gives you an opportunity to learn to trust God. When Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. Probably everyone in this room has had some time in your life when you were praying that for real. You didn't know how you'd make the payment on the house. You didn't know how you'd pay for the kids' clothes or uh, even where the next meal would come from. So that, that's a good thing about money. Uh, but it's also dangerous because money can be a rival to God for our affections. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and mammon. And we have to be very careful to learn to value God more than money. I would also say that something we should be doing is when you're in trouble financially, you should be asking this question, what is God teaching me? Uh, 
Money is a great teacher. At least God is a great teacher and He uses finances to teach us. So when you're in trouble, as you look to the Word of God and as we go through many passages today, that's the question, what is God teaching me? What is God doing? And sometimes He gives us trials financially to loosen our grip and our hearts upon things that are going to perish anyway, including gold and silver, that we would set our affections upon Him as the ultimate source of happiness. Uh, we want to keep a balanced perspective on money. I, I love Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, where he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Lest I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Both wealth and poverty bring temptation, don't they? And he's praying he'll have just enough. So, according to the Bible, wealth can be a blessing. In the book of Proverbs, Proverbs it's describing the way things are sometimes without necessarily approving. When it says, the poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. That's not saying that's a good thing, it's just that's a fact of life. Now, you don't know if those friends are worth anything, because they may like you just because of your money. They want to be in your entourage, and some of the money will fall off on them. Uh, The person who is wealthy... Uh, is defended against calamity. The rich man's wealth is his fortress. The ruin of the poor is their poverty. If, if the rich man's child is sick, he can pay for the best doctors. He can take them to the best hospitals. If his house gets knocked down in an earthquake, he can rebuild or move. Uh, the poor man doesn't have those options. Uh, Proverbs acknowledges that it's hard, hard to be poor. All the brothers of the poor man hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but they are gone. That's sad, isn't it? Maybe it's because he kept pursuing them, asking them to co-sign his loans and borrow money from him. Uh, But those who are poor uh, don't have the nice things money can buy. They're tempted to greed and envy in their own way. And By the way, it's, it's not just the rich who are lovers of money. Poor people, who buys most of the lottery tickets? It's the poor people who buy most of the lottery tickets, hoping to be very rich. And, and, and what, what Proverbs guy was praying in chapter 30 is too, is that don't, I don't want to be poor lest I be tempted to get what I need by stealing or doing something wrong. So there, there are temptations on both sides. But a good thing is that wealth does teach us to value God and serve Him above all others. And, and you know, in terms of wealth, Proverbs says that it's, it's better to get wisdom than gold. To gain understanding is to be chosen above silver. It's, it's better to be righteous and have integrity. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. A good name is to be desired more than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. And I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about silver and gold some today because among a lot of conservative people, if you watch certain TV stations like Fox or something, and they're always saying that, oh, if you just buy gold and silver, everything's going to be safe. Well, so many of the references in the Bible to gold and silver is there no is no safety there. I'm not saying don't buy it. We're going to actually talk about whether it's a good idea to buy it later. But that's not where your security is. Our, our security is in the Lord. And a lot of Proverbs, even though it says that there are benefits to being wealthy. Proverbs is also saying it's not the most important thing. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. 
Bruce Walke says that money can buy food to put on the table, but not the love that brings the family together around the table. So wealth is a very foolish goal for life. Uh, Proverbs says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you have set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. It's amazing how many fortunes are lost, right? The people four years ago, and they owned three or four houses, and they were, oh, they were making millions of dollars, and everything was going great. And you know, the people that bought this or that, and, and you, you read articles about the lottery winners. You know, five years later, they're divorced and homeless because of their folly. And, and the real issue with wealth, though, is that wealth will never satisfy your soul. It, it, it doesn't satisfy spiritual appetites. And this is the idolatry of wealth and, and money and things, is that our temptation is to think, if I just was out of debt, I would be happy. If I just then owned my house free and clear, I'd be happy. If I just could live in a house I owned, I'd be happy. If, if I just had this much saved, I'd be happy. Or if I just owned this kind of car, this kind of TV, or this kind of cell phone. And, and, and that's the temptation of the idolatry of money that... Money will not make you happy. The things money will buy will not make you happy. The Lord alone will make you happy. And if, if you seek wealth in that way, uh, you're going you're gonna to be the loser. And you know, the, the excess of money, like in the parable like of the rich fool that Jesus tells when he wants to build bigger barns and he's saying has so much stored up for the years to come. He's finding a security there. That, that is ruinous. It's a false sense of security. That's why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for the camel to go through the eye of the needle. Now, He does say all things are possible with God. But it's hard. And by the way, even though some of you may feel like you're poor, if the people in India, China, Africa... We're looking at you. You are all rich by comparison. And then when, when Paul says the love of money is the root of every kind of evil, every one of the Ten Commandments has been violated for the sake of money. People have killed. People have committed adultery. Obviously stealing, lying. Families have been divided. Friendships ruined. Churches split. And many people today are in financial bondage. Uh, remember that Proverbs 30 where he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Have you ever prayed, Lord, don't make me too rich? But that's what he does. Uh, I remember in Fiddler on the Roof when Teviev is complaining about his poverty and right before he stings, If I were a rich man. And he says, I know wealth is a curse. Smite me. <laughs> um, but it's true. Not many of us can handle it. Instead, we need to learn the secret of contentment. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we should be content. That's a great spiritual principle of wisdom. And then we, we trust God to meet our needs. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. That is something that God has promised to us. Not fancy cars, big houses but that He will not allow those who love Him to starve. He will take care of us. And 
part of it is established that no one in your church should ever worry about being homeless or hungry, right? When you're in the family of the people of God, we take care of each other. God through the means. It doesn't drop, you know, like Luther says, it's not that God drops a roasted goose into your mouth, but uh, through means that God has given to the family, to the church, to the love of the people together, uh, God does take care of His own. And it's great for me to see how that happens. And the nice thing about a financial crisis is we've seen so much more. Have you seen more of that in your church? I've seen just lovely examples in our church when people have gotten into deep trouble, how others have taken care of them. And it's given us a chance to be more like we were in the, like the early church than in my lifetime we've ever been. But the, the money problems most of us have are spiritual rather than financial. Uh, we live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, and yet people are not content or satisfied. Again, they, they think they need more to be happy. Uh, one of the Puritans said, Contentment works not by adding to our circumstances, but by subtracting from our desires. A lot of it is trusting God to give us what He sovereignly deems best, using the means that He's established. But I love Isaiah 55. It applies to all of our idols. When, when the Lord says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. See, we, we are spending time and money chasing after what's never going to satisfy our souls. Now, there's wisdom to working and saving and all this. I'm not, but that's not going to satisfy your soul. Christ is the one who, without money, without cost, He is the living water. He is the bread of life. And if you have Him, your soul will be satisfied. And whether you're barely getting by or you have savings you can help others, it isn't going to matter that much to you. And, and, and most of our, certainly our discontentment and our insecurity and our worry is because we've bought into the world's lie that we need these things to make us happy rather than enjoying the overwhelming happiness, joy, and peace that comes in relationship with God, also knowing that we have treasure in the world to come. We don't lay up treasures on earth. We store up treasures in heaven where they are kept safe for us.